This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Today, some more reflections on the 10-year anniversary of the Commonwealth's decision to ban the cattle trade to Indonesia. It was actually on this day, 10 years ago, that that decision was announced by the former Ag Minister, Joe Ludwig. Today, a chance to reflect with Dr Peter Barnard, who played an instrumental role in creating SCAS which is the Exporter Supply Chain Assurance System, still in place, still being used by the livestock export industry today. At the time, Dr Barnard was General Manager of Livestock Exports at Meat and Livestock Australia. So, yes, playing a really pivotal role all those years ago. That's to come a special feature on that 10-year anniversary after news headlines at half past 12 today and a bit to get through between now and the news headlines at half past 12, taking a look at the latest Auditor-General's report which concludes Australia's farming and tourism industries are extremely vulnerable to the threat of pests and diseases. And Australian farmers have planted more hectares of grain this winter than ever before. The latest crop forecast by government forecaster Abares is out today and as economist Peter Collins explains, nationally it could reap about 47 million tonnes of grain. Wheat is going to be, for the major crops, wheat's going to be about 28 million tonnes and then uh, barley is about 10 million tonnes and then canola is going to be about 4 million tonnes. So um, it's going to be um, not as big as last year but still uh, quite big compared to history. And what's driving that? Oh, well, the seasonal conditions. Um, the, the season opening in New South Wales and Western Australia and Queensland has been really good. I mean, people in Western Australia have been telling us that uh, it's been as good a season opening as what they've ever had. On top of that, prices are looking pretty good, uh, and especially for canola. So um, that's why we're heading for uh, a planted area for winter crops. It'll be a record. Um, So even though the yields won't be quite as good as last year when they were exceptional, with the big planted area and the good season opening, and also the outlook for winter rainfall is, is quite good. So all of those things together is driving is driving an overall pretty good year for winter crops. So this year you're expecting more hectares to be planted yes. than ever before? Uh, that's correct, yeah. A lot of that has also been driven by canola. As, uh, the season opening's been really good for canola growers, people want, and, and the expected margins for canola uh, and are really good. So a lot of canola is, gone, is going to go in. Um, Western Australia's canola area looks like you know, we're expecting that to be a record for WA. Has the high price of livestock been a factor in perhaps seeing more farmers, mixed farmers, turn their attention to cropping? Well, there's in, in some states like um, Western Australia, their sheep numbers are at historic lows. Uh, so that means that there's more land available for cropping. The margins and the season opening is just so good for cropping that uh, if, if the land is available, they've, they've gone, gone for it in a big way. 
And can I ask you about the impact of the mouse plague in New South Wales? We've heard from New South Wales farmers the expectation that a billion dollars worth of crop might have been lost already. How much of an impact have the mouse had on on your forecast? Uh, For our winter crop production, what we've been hearing from people uh, out on the ground is that um, a lot more baiting has been going on as people, as the farmers have been planting their winter crop. Uh, that will eat into their costs of production and lower their margins. Uh, but most people that we've been talking to think that they will be able to manage the problem with minimal production losses at this stage. That's not to say that there won't be some producers that will suffer production losses because that you'll always be able to find some producers that do suffer losses in these things. But at a statewide level and a national level, it's not expected to be a major problem. Peter Collins, he's from ABES, speaking to Kath Sullivan, 10 past 12. And just at the end of that conversation, you heard the mention about how the national crop probably won't suffer much damage from the mouse plague in the eastern states. But that certainly doesn't mean some farmers won't be significantly affected by the pest. Ant Martin farms in the central west of New South Wales and says he was shocked to see his entire sorghum crop completely destroyed by mice. We planted 200 acres, a bit over 200 acres of sorghum in three different paddocks. We had had good rain afterwards, got a good germination, very good germination. Had agronomists in early in the piece and they estimated it could be a 9 to 10 tonne per hectare crop of sorghum. Then we started to get mice and we then started poisoning. We had we did four poisonings with aeroplanes, flying poison on, and we started to see that there was damage being done, so um, the agronomists again estimated that they probably could have taken taken a tonne and might have got back, back down to eight tonne to the hectare. So we poisoned, yeah, the last poisoning, he reckoned it was probably five or six tonne to the hectare. For somebody who doesn't necessarily know whether that's the initial estimate, nine tonne, is that a, is that a decent That's a very good crop, probably record for here. And obviously we were, yeah, we weren't expecting to get that, but it was, yeah, had expectations of a reasonably good return. And what, how did you discover that the mice had been in there and pretty much eaten at all? Well, you could actually see that what they were doing, they were, they were they're up onto the heads and they were eating the whole of the head, they just, and you'd be left with a, like a clearer, a vision of the of the crop. You could see see the heads that had been eaten, and then the ones that had grain were still, still quite dark. Yeah, you could sort of see see what they were doing. But then we we got to uh, where the crop started to go off and started to mature, and it was all doing the right thing. We thought it was looking the right colour and. We left that for probably a month and had a couple of frosts and the, the grain went to what it should do, but I didn't go into a paddock. I didn't go into the paddock, just looking from the, the edges. Then we put the header in and uh, we thought, oh, yeah, we'll get our three or four, four or five tonne. And the header did a run right down the length of one paddock, came back and he, the header driver said, we've got no grain. He said, it's nothing. And um, so they got under the header to make sure that they'd closed up all the, all the shirts 
and everything was okay and yeah there was literally no grain. What did you think when he said that? Well I couldn't believe it I just yeah I thought well seeing them eat some but to eat the whole lot was yeah just a shock and then when I went went down to have a look at the crop he grabbed the heads and they're just they were just like spongy paper no grain whatsoever in them. I'm sure there have been mouse plagues here over the years. Have you ever experienced one like that or have you ever sustained that type of damage? No, never. And we've, we probably haven't had a plague similar to this. This is the, certainly the worst for us. The loss of that summer crop, what will that mean in terms of how much money does that mean that, that's, that's, that's just gone to the mice? Well, it's and probably, yeah. also for your operations, like what would you have used that for? Yeah, the, we've probably lost, I'd say, sort of roughly 250000 which is not a quarter of our income, but it's a fair bit of our income, would have been used getting us out of the, the debt that we picked up with the drought. So well, certainly something we'll feel. And back to the sorghum, what have you decided to do with this? Is it useful for stock feed? Is it... No, it hasn't um, got any stock feed value, we believe. We've just finished, or in the process of finishing, slashing it all to try and get it down, and then we hope either burn it or or plough it in. We've just got to make the next, next decision. Aunt Martin from Casillas speaking to Joanna Woodburn about losing all his sorghum to mice. You can read more of that story online. There is a link for you on the ABC Rural Facebook page. I'm just taking a look at it now. You can leave a comment there if you would like. As David has done, he's not only worried about the mice, he's also worried about frosts this year and says frosts will make lower yields. Check it out on the ABC Rural Facebook page. It is a quarter past 12 and the latest Auditor General's report has concluded that Australia's farming and tourism industries are extremely vulnerable to the threat of pests and diseases. As National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan explains, that's pretty significant when you consider those industries are worth almost $100 billion. The Auditor General, the Australian National Audit Office, has really attacked the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment, which we know has responsibility for managing Australia's biosecurity for animals and plants, basically our last line of defence in keeping pests and disease out of Australia. And it's found that it's a whole heap of issues with the way that the department regulates our biosecurity. The Auditor General's really hit home and said that there's no plan or guide to the department's biosecurity regulation and that the department can't demonstrate that it is effectively implementing key reform plans. So if you read through the report, it is quite jargony. There's a lot of language there, but Basically, it said that there's stuff getting into the country that shouldn't be, and it's stuff that's either been declared or it's been found to be non-compliant with our quarantine laws, and for some reason, it's getting past the keeper. So where does the report say the government is falling down? A lot of the systems and frameworks that should be in place simply aren't in place. It found that there are areas or there's not really an appropriate accountability for the way that money is spent, or it's found that there hasn't been sufficient um, systems in place in terms of dedicating the resources based on the risk that a certain disease or pest might represent to Australia. So basically a lot of issues with the systems and the protocols that the department has saying that, you know, its ability to detect non-compliance, that is people who might be 
trying to bring things into Australia that are banned are actually only partially appropriate. And I think that would send a shiver up a lot of people who rely on our, our biosecurity services to protect our, those main industries. One line stood out to me too, which simply said, intelligence is not gathered and managed effectively. Should that worry producers? I think it absolutely will. And we've heard from the National Farmers Federation since the Auditor General put this report out, um, basically saying that it doesn't have confidence in our biosecurity system and that it wants to have a new overhaul of the biosecurity system so that farmers can have confidence. And also it's been calling for a while now for like a renewable funding stream to ensure that we do have the right safeguards in place when it comes to these pests and diseases coming into the country. You might recall just last month, I think it was, during Beef 2021, the Prime Minister was actually in Rockhampton and announced a huge spend for biosecurity, the biggest public spend on biosecurity in a long time. Of course, that followed the failure the federal government's failure to implement a biosecurity levy, which would have seen attacks on all freight coming into the country, be it in containers or, or raw freight, that would have funded, I think, up to $325 million over three years that would have funded our biosecurity services anyway. So all of this sort of points to um, a lot of questions being raised about what we are doing to protect agriculture and tourism. The Auditor General's made eight recommendations and the Department very swiftly came out yesterday afternoon and accepted all eight recommendations, which will go to basically setting up better systems, frameworks, processes, which should hopefully improve that that last line of defence against pests and disease. Has the government responded at all? Well, we did hear from the Agriculture Minister, who normally likes to talk a fair bit about biosecurity, but uh, he must have been on the hop because all he really said was that he uh, accepted or welcomed the Auditor-General's report and the Department's response. Kath, what happens from here? Well, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch, Warwick. We know that the government prides itself on its biosecurity. It was the coalition that introduced tough new rules on people bringing in um, banned products into Australia. I think we may be up to 16 or so people who have been turned away from Australia, had their visas cancelled when they've turned up at customs with banned products such as meat that could potentially carry African swine fever or, or traces of that in the meat products that they were trying to bring into Australia. So it obviously prides itself on biosecurity. It knows this is a big issue and I think the COVID pandemic has perhaps educated all Australians a little bit more about what biosecurity actually is. So, I mean, while it's been swiftly accepted and the recommendations are in place, the department says it's already undertaking works to strengthen its biosecurity systems. I do wonder just where this conversation is going to go and whether or not those industries most at risk will see this as perhaps an indication that more needs to be done in this area. National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan talking to Warwick Long from Parliament House in Canberra. You can read more detail on that report and its recommendations by going to the ABC website. So you can search ABC Rural Biosecurity and there is a link to the story on the ABC Rural Facebook page. A few comments underneath. This one from Tanya has quite a few likes. Tanya says... Yet they are constantly at producers to ensure we have and comply with biosecurity plans and regularly impress upon us our requirements and obligations to reduce, manage, eliminate biosecurity risks on farm. Bit hard to do that when the gatekeepers 
are not doing the job they expect of us. They need to practice what they preach. Also, this one has a few likes. Nick says, this has been the situation for decades and only now the issue has surfaced. And Mark says, who could have conceived of a government department consistently stuffing their jobs up? Hard to believe. Have your say on the ABC Rural Facebook page or you can text through 0448 922 604. It is 21 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. News headlines and then off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Some rain on the way. Is it coming your way? You will find out shortly here on the Country Hour. First up, though, the world's largest known gold rock specimen has just been sold to the Perth Mint for $3 million. The 94-kilogram gold-encrusted rock known as King Henry, will go on permanent public display. ABC reporter Jared Lucas was at the Beta Hunt underground mine near Cambelda when it was first brought to the surface in 2018. As I watered the dirt down, yeah, there was just gold everywhere, as far as you could see. I've been in Airleg Miner for roughly 16 years. Never in my life have I seen anything like this. I've been in a couple of gold mines and um, you see the, the um, gold vein in the face, but nothing like this. This was just chunks of gold in the face, on the ground. Uh, truly unique, I reckon. What did you do? Well, <laughs> yeah, after I nearly fell over looking at it, um, yeah, I just I, I had a jar with me and uh, he, he helped me uh, start collecting it up and and watering it down and so on. And yeah, we just I don't know, we were just picking it up for hours. That was airleg miner Henry Dole speaking after the discovery of what's now known as the Father's Day vein in September 2018. It produced some of the biggest gold specimens ever seen anywhere in the world. The biggest was 94 kilograms and became known as the King Henry, named after the miner who found it. The gold-covered rock now has a new home. Sold to the Perth Mint for $3 million, it's going on permanent public display. The fact that it's not melted into another dory bar and people get to actually see it on display for the next hundred or so years, as long as it's around, uh, it's, it's actually very thrilling, actually. Having been in this industry for 34 years, it's, it's nice to see one of the specimens that I've been part of on display forever. So it's, it's a timeless piece, for sure. The Father's Day vein produced about 30,000 ounces of gold, worth about $40 million in just a few days. The mine's Canadian owners then took gold specimens, including the King Henry, on a global tour to show investors in the United States, United Kingdom and China the riches at its West Australian mine. Despite fears King Henry might have been sold offshore, Carora Resources CEO Paul Andre Hewitt said the Perth Mint deal is the best-case scenario. Look, there is a lot of people interested in something of this scale and size, uh, but as a company we felt it was right to sell it here in Western Australia and to keep it local for everyone here to enjoy. So selling it at a discount was important and leaving it here in WA uh, was also very important to our company. The government-owned Mint dipped into its gold reserves to buy a King Henry, 
but says it already looks like it was a bargain. Uh, it certainly has gone up in value, uh, but because we didn't have to outlay state funds on it, um, it's actually a great deal for the state of Western Australia. Uh, typically, something like this would trade for you know up to two, two and a half times uh, what its actual gold value is, and given the significance of it being the largest in existence today, it may even have gone somewhat higher than that. The Perth Mint CEO Richard Hayes says he's well aware of the historical significance of preserving such a unique specimen. In 1931, the biggest gold nugget ever found in Western Australia was dug up at Widgimortha. The famed Golden Eagle was later melted down during the Great Depression. The sad part of uh, Australia's gold history is that so many nuggets found in the early days uh, were melted down for their value and uh, we're very privileged and proud to have been able to uh, be part of uh, maintaining this part of Australia's cultural heritage for display. Uh, the temptation always is uh, for companies to, um, uh, to extract the maximum financial value. And could there be a repeat of the King Henry at Beta Hunt? The ABC was invited to the mine after they recently struck another rich cluster of visible gold. Senior geologist Zaf Thanos explained how the process works. A truck driver reported that he potentially found uh, gold in one of the truck dumps and we've come out here for a look and lo and behold we found a piece weighing over 100 kilos. So now that we've got our loader operator we've spread the dirt out and we're watering it down and picking through it making sure we collect all the, the large nuggets. And what's the process called? Is it truffling? Is that right? I've never heard yeah, of that. Well, since we do it so often, we've termed it truffling. <laughs> Just like a truffle hog finds uh, truffles with your hands down and burying, digging through the, digging through the dirt. <laughs> it was initially named after our foreman, you can see behind you there. <laughs> yeah, he, he loves it. He's good at it. <laughs> Definitely site specific. <laughs> and this is, I mean, this is the third time I've been lucky enough to be invited out to the Beta Hunt mine for a pretty rare find, but it's becoming less rare, isn't it? Yeah, it's becoming a bit of a first world mining problem, this one. <laughs> We've got finding great, great little pockets of gold. We're still in the right, right geologic environment, so we do expect hopefully to find some more in the near future as well. I can understand why they're smiling, why they're laughing, can't you? Senior geologist Zaf Thanos ending that report by Jared Lucas. And if you want to read the online story, it's easy. Just go to the ABC Rural Facebook page and click on the link and you are there. 27 past 12 here on the Country Hour and off to the Bureau of Meteorology in just a moment. First, though, with the news headlines, here's Jonathan Hopper. Afternoon, Belinda. WA has recorded no new cases of COVID-19 overnight, leaving the state's total at 1,018 infections. The Health Department says there is just one active infection in the state. The WA Environment Minister has signed off on a plan to reduce carbon emissions at an LNG development near Caratha. Under the plan, Woodside and BHP's Pluto project would be subject to a target of 30% less emissions by 2030 and net zero emissions by 2050. The targets follow research by the Conservation Council and Australia Institute, which found the project is the most polluting fossil fuel project currently proposed in Australia. And Germany's announced it will fly home more than 22,000 litres of beer from Afghanistan as NATO prepares to withdraw. Commanders had recently banned soldiers from drinking amid growing violence across the country ahead of the planned withdrawal. Local forces were unable to sell the alcohol due to religious and cultural differences, so a civilian contractor will now repatriate the drinks. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate that. It's 29 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Radio WA. Still to come between now and the news at one, the double header. 
As promised yesterday, Optimushe for the sheep and the cattle market results. Tracy Kilner going through yardings and prices for you. And then marking the 10-year anniversary of the suspension of the cattle trade to Indonesia all those years ago and catching up with one of the real key people in the conversation at that time, the person who was right there developing SCAS, uh, the system that looks after the, the quality assurance, basically, of the supply chain. Today, it was introduced all those years ago. It is still in place today. The man behind it, Peter Barnard, reflects on that time 10 years ago. First, though, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Matt Bodehoven. There is some rain on the way. What is the situation currently, though, around the Southwest Land Division? Yeah, good afternoon, Belinda. Um, yeah, we've got a few showers well, at, at the moment during today. Uh, we've got a ridge over the south of the state, which is dominating the pattern. A few showers uh, through the West Pilbara, uh, but generally over the Southwest Land Division, uh, conditions are relatively rain-free. Uh, we'll, showers will creep into the southwest, uh, Central West District during the evening. Uh, into Wednesday, a low-pressure system will approach the Southwest Capes uh, during the day, so that low-pressure system is going to intensify. Um, so showers will extend through the Southwest Land Division, thunderstorms in the Central West District, Central Wheat Belt, and also in the northern parts of the Lower West. Uh, some squally winds through most parts, um, and we'll be issuing a severe weather warning. So that'll focus on the Southwest District, uh, mainly coastal parts, uh, even a, a adjacent to Lower West. And we'll be looking at um, damaging gusts up to around 100 kilometres per hour, and we're going to have some dangerous surf and tides around the especially around the Bunbury Geograph Bay area uh, during Wednesday as that low-pressure system approaches. On Thursday, uh, that low-pressure system will pass uh, south of the state, uh, south, just south of the western south coast during the early morning there on Wednesday and then contract um, well south of the state um, by the evening. Uh, showers continuing throughout the uh, southwest land division, thunderstorms in the lower west and the southwest district. Uh, the severe weather warning probably continue into Thursday morning there, and that'll be around the southwest and the south coastal areas with um, some damaging winds and the tides will still be fairly high, uh, especially around the Bustleton area. Might see a little bit of flooding. Um, Rainfall-wise, on Thursday, we'll be looking at around 18 millim- up to 18 millimetres through the southwest, lower west, um, 15 millimetres near the central west coast, inland parts probably up to around 3 millimetres. Um, then into Friday and Saturday, we'll be looking at a surface trough uh, lying over the northern parts of the southwest land division and through the goldfields and Eucla. Uh, showers throughout uh, most areas there on Friday and Saturday, uh, though probably less frequent through the southern areas, especially the Great Southern. Uh, thunderstorms will be close to the trough there on Friday and Saturday. Um, and rainfall-wise, on Friday, looking at around 5 millimetres uh, near the western south coast, uh, through the lower west and the central west, could see up to 8 millimetres in the far northeast parts of the central wheat belt and around 10 millimetres in the southeast coastal. On Saturday, uh, rainfall figures will be generally a lot lighter, less than two millimetres through most parts. They might get up to five millimetres in the eastern parts of the central wheat belt and the southeast coastal. Uh, 
And just to backtrack here, back on Wednesday, rainfall figures. So we're looking at uh, up to 10 millimetres through the central west, lower west, up to 15 millimetres around the southwest district and through the central wheat belt, uh, five and great southern around up to seven millimetres there on Wednesday. Now, what about the temperatures? Any really cold conditions? Um, not something to focus much on with this system. Oh, well, um, with on Wednesday when that uh, uh, it approaches, yeah, the temperatures will be a bit cooler. Um, I think we're, yeah, in the high teens. Um, and then, yeah, when that pushes through there on Thursday, that it will be slightly more warmer than what we see on uh, Wednesday. And getting down, what minimum temperatures then? Oh, no, the minimum temperatures will be up. Um, there won't be any, because this is a more of a uh, bit of a tropical influence um, and there's not a lot of cold air pumping up behind the system as it passes um, on Thursday. So it should be fairly windy um, and a bit of moisture around, so the minimum temperatures will be up. Okay. And northern and eastern parts? Yeah, so on uh, Wednesday when that trough and low pressure system approach uh, we could see some heavy falls around the northwest parts of the Gascoigne Western Pilbara so you could see scattered rainfall figures of 30 to 60 millimetres through there, Uh, maybe potentially higher, uh, especially around the Exmouth area so we're keeping an eye, close eye on that during Wednesday so showers and uh, thunderstorms through that part of the world, also showers extending into the inland parts of the Gascoigne and western parts of the goldfields and then on Thursday as that trough progresses a little little bit further along um, the Pilbara coast we could see a couple of good rainfall figures around um, the area between Caratha and um, Onslow or Exmouth there could see another 20 millimetres or so a couple of showers continuing through the Gascoigne through the goldfields as well and then on Friday and Saturday uh, we're looking at thunderstorms um, through the goldfields Euclid southern parts of the Gascoigne a uh, couple of showers lingering through the Pilbara coastal areas there on Friday and uh, showers getting into the interior, south interior there on Saturday. And Matt, any warnings for this Tuesday afternoon? Yeah, we've got some few warnings out there at the moment. We've got gale winds around, uh, developing around Geraldton coastal waters um, during this evening and then we've got strong winds through a lot of the state here, through the Pilbara waters, through Ningaloo, um, Gascoigne, Lancelin, around the Perth area, Bunbury, Geograph, Lewin and Albany. Well, Matt, there was a bit to get through, so thank you. Cheers. 25 to 1, Richard Hudson is here now taking a look at the rainfall figures. Yeah, and for the entire northern and eastern forecast districts, the only real rain was in the Eucla, and that was Eucla itself with two mils, so not real rain. In the southwest land division forecast districts, there are a few long weekend readings. In the southwest, Busselton Shire recorded five, Collie, Eight mils over four days. Northcliffe actually topped it with the real 24-hour figure, and that was six mils. Pemberton had six mils over five days. Walpole Forestry, eight mils over four days. And then in the southern coastal region, Denmark, five. And that's it. Nowhere else had any significant rainfall. Great. Thank you for that, Richard. 24 to 1. And off to Mouche. Sheep and cattle going under the hammer today because of the long weekend 
And so both of the sales on today at Muche. Tracy Kilner along just before the news at one. And it was on this day back in 2011 that former Agriculture Minister Joe Ludwig held a press conference in Brisbane to announce the suspension of the live cattle trade to Indonesia. ordered the complete suspension of all livestock exports to Indonesia for the purposes of slaughter until new safeguards are established for the trade. Uh, This suspension will be in place until the government and industry establishes sufficient safeguards which provide a verifiable and transparent supply chain assurance, up to and including the point of slaughter for every consignment that leaves Australia. The trade to Indonesia will only recommence when we are certain industry is able to comply with that supply chain assurance. It was clear at the time the Gillard government was not going to allow the trade to resume unless an assurance could be made that all Australian cattle would be shipped to Indonesia and slaughtered humanely. In the weeks that followed, Dr Peter Barnard played an instrumental role in creating SCAS, that is the Exporter Supply Chain Assurance System, which is still used by the livestock export industry today. At the time, Dr Barnard was the General Manager of Livestock Exports at Meat and Livestock Australia, and he spoke to Matt Brand about how SCAS was born. Well... It was uh, an enormously busy time. Uh, As you will be aware, uh, the Four Corners program aired on the 30th of May. We then almost immediately realised that we needed to be thinking about a new set of conditions under which the trade would operate in the future. We wrote to government with some suggestions on that new set of conditions in early June, but despite those representations, on the 7th of June, on on the night of the 7th of June, uh, the government chose to close the trade to Indonesia. And then it was a matter of working with the government uh, on the new conditions under which the trade would reopen. It's an interesting part of the timeline, actually, in that the, the, the idea of SCAS came just before the ban. Um, yes, well, look, we had been working uh, on those issues for some time. We had s- some suggestions to make the government in that regard. And in fact, many of those suggestions were taken up in the final implementation of SCAS. So, you know, the four principles of SCAS are OAE standards of animal welfare to apply throughout the supply chain control through the supply chain, traceability through the supply chain, and all of the above to be determined through independent audit. And, you know, many elements of that were in some suggestions that we had made to government and, mm-hmm. and were in our plans. So the creation of that, of that final-looking SCAS, how many people were involved? I'm picturing sort of you in a war room. Peter Barnard. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, there were there were very, very, very many people involved. Of course, there was a raft of departmental people. There were representatives from industry, so a number of the major exporters were in the room. And then there were 
players like MLA and Live Corp also in the room. There were many minds applied to this task of designing SCAS. Can you remember what the feedback was like from the Indonesian end when you said this is what Australia is going to implement? There was some resistance um, from the Indonesian end. They were clearly concerned about the impact of the new regulations. But at the same time, uh, they wanted the trade to recommence. And that was uh, the thought that predominated in the end. How significant do you think it is that SCAS essentially was put together and rolled out within a matter of weeks? Uh, look, it's, it's very significant. I mean, I think uh, the whole design of SCAS basically occurred over a period of three weeks. Uh, so that was, uh, that's really rapid turnaround for the development of uh, regulation particularly when these were ground-breaking regulations. I mean, rarely are exporters made responsible for how exported goods are used overseas. So, you know, the fact that Australian exporters are responsible for the treatment of the Australian cattle in foreign countries is, you know, really earth-breaking regulation. But the regulations have basically stood the test of time, even though they were put together very, very rapidly. For you, SCAS in 2011 compared to the SCAS we see now, has there been many changes? I think there's been some fine-tuning, um, but those four major principles that I mentioned a few minutes ago of uh, OIE, Animal Welfare Standards, control through the supply chain, traceability through the supply chain and independent audit, those four principles haven't changed. It's just some of the detail has changed. It often gets said that Australia is now a world leader when it comes to animal welfare for live exports. Do you feel that's true? Absolutely. There's absolutely no question about that. In fact, just within the last 24 hours, I'd We've have been reading a recent report uh, from the EU that pointed heavily to Australian regulations, both our regulations on board vessels and the SCAS regulations as being world-leading regulations. I think that's widely acknowledged that Australia is a leader in the world in this area. If that footage from some Indonesian abattoirs was never released and made public back in 2011. Do you think we'd have SCAS right now? Look, I can't, I can't answer that question. What I can say is that we had a process of continual improvement in animal welfare standards. So we were working assiduously uh, with supply chains both in Indonesia and in the Middle East to uh, raise animal welfare uh, standards. But of course, when the government comes in with regulation, that makes implementing these things in a sense easier because uh, the supply chains are forced to do it, but it's not without risks. Dr Peter Barnard, the former General Manager of Livestock Exports at Meat and Livestock Australia.
16 to 1. The suspension of the cattle trade to Indonesia in 2011 had wide-ranging implications for families and businesses all throughout the supply chain. The operator of WA's northernmost port in Wyndham said it had a devastating impact on the port's finances and the workforce. Cambridge Gulf Limited CEO Tony Schaefer says a shipment of cattle left the port just days before the ban was announced. You know, at the time the ban uh, came about, we actually had 7,500 head of cattle uh, adjusted in their yards when the discussion on a potential ban was uh, getting around. You know, after that Four Corners report went to air, we were very fortunate that we actually had those uh, cattle exported uh, a couple of days before the ban came into effect. Otherwise, that would have been, I imagine, quite challenging for pastoralists to actually uh, collect those cattle and take them back to station. So, yeah, it was uh, really, uh, uh, really hard for our port. What sort of impact did that have on the port and the Wyndham community? Yeah, look, it was uh, really quite a devastating uh, impact on us. Uh, The previous two years, we had uh, record numbers through the port of uh, live export uh, numbers. Uh, 2008-09, we had just under 80,000 head uh, exported, and 2009-10, just under 70,000 head. And we were expecting to finish uh, 2010-11 off quite strong as well, with some further exports towards the end of June. But obviously that didn't occur. And the following year started particularly badly. I guess the numbers really kept declining. In 12, 13, we fell right off a cliff. We had under 20,000 head of cattle through the pool, which was, uh, I guess, the worst numbers we've had on record. Uh, we recovered slightly after that, but really didn't uh, get back to those same numbers. And only this uh, this year, actually, we made the decision to take the yards down from the port because uh, they just weren't viable anymore. Do you think that the live expand all the way back in 2011 is behind those declining numbers out of Wyndham Port? Certainly do. Yeah, I certainly think it had a, uh, you know, it was a, a very significant contributing factor. At the time, back in 2009 10, our cattle yard lessee had invested, you know, quite a bit of time and effort and money into upgrading the yards and had uh, plans to do further extensions and additions to the yards to actually improve them for live export. That obviously uh, became a huge risk when uh, the future of the industry was brought into doubt because of that ban. So there were no further investments in the yard. So, yeah, I do think that live export ban was a significant contributing factor to that. Tony Schaefer, he's the CEO of Cambridge Gulf Limited, the operator of the Wyndham Port in the East Kimberley. 13 to 1. The announcement of the snap ban on the cattle trade to Indonesia on this day back in 2011, is a day the industry remembers very well. Camille Camp is a second-generation stockwoman working on Kalyida Station near Derby in the Kimberley. She says she got together with her family to watch the ABC's special report on Four Corners. I do remember it. I remember us coming over to my parents' house, all the family, and we watched the report on Four Corners which was a really devastating thing for us to watch, as I'm sure many pastoralists can relate to. When we send our cattle off on the trucks, load them up and they go to the export yards and then they get on the boats, you always expect that they're going to have the same treatment that they have on farm. So for us, it was really devastating to see that kind of treatment.
I remember there was a few of us crying. And then after that, we never really spoke much about the actual ban. It was just like we never had a family meeting about it or what we would do. It was just, okay, we're not going to sell cattle at the moment, but we're going to continue what we're doing because for us, there was really no other option whether we sell cattle or not. Our cattle still need to be mustered. Otherwise, it's a major animal welfare issue if we leave weaners on just for the season. So I just tried to tried to work through it. But it was a very stressful time for us as a family. Going back to that night when that Four Corners report aired, did you, do you think anyone ever imagined that a, a ban was coming and, and that the long impact that would have on industry to come? No, I don't think anyone could have imagined that particularly the long impact that it's had. Um, even though like the ban was quite short, it has impacted the industry a lot and it's still yeah, we're still feeling those impacts. What lessons do you think industry's taken out of that experience? Obviously ten years later we're still sort of seeing a, a high level of scrutiny on the live export trade. I think it's made us a lot more accountable and we're a lot more proactive as an industry these days rather than just waiting for something to happen and then reacting to that. We've started making changes off our own back, which I think is really beneficial for the industry and continuously trying to improve the industry without being forced to make those improvements. On your property at Calyeda, there is a really strong um, focus on low-stress stock handling and animal welfare, isn't, isn't there? Do you think that that experience uh, during the live export ban has uh, has influenced the way you do things on your on your family business? We've always followed a high standard of animal welfare when working with our cattle, so your low-stress stock handling. Um, in the last few years, we've brought in trisulfan, which is a pain relief for when you're doing dehorning or castrating. Uh, we also, after the ban, brought in drought master bulls to our herd, which was a Brahmin herd. So the predominant reason for that was because of the pole gene, which means um, we don't have to dehorn as much anymore, which is a lot more beneficial for the animal. But for us, like we'd always had those high standards of animal welfare. So it was more about I think getting out to the wider community, what we actually do out here and show, you know, we're doing everything we possibly can for the welfare of our animals. I think as an industry, we need to work on being more transparent and just educating people on what we do and why we do it and why a live export ban would be so detrimental. Calyuda Station Senior Stockwoman Camille Camp with Courtney Fowler. Nine to one. The suspension of the cattle trade to Indonesia all those years ago was the catalyst for a blog called Central Station. It was co-created by Jane Sale, who runs Yugawalla Pastoral Company with her husband Hayden in the Kimberley. Jane says the blog is a great place for anyone outside the industry to get a better understanding of station life. It's actually our birthday today, eight-year <laughs> birthday, but it was definitely a result of the live export ban and the realisation of the disconnect between urban population and us and the fact what the media was saying about our industry and what was happening, just it was taking small amounts of information and using that rather than using all the information that they had at hand. So 
I met Stephanie Coombs, who is my co-creator at Central Station. And then from that event, we organised with quite a few pastoral women to go to Indonesia and um, Landline did a story on it called Mending Fences. And it was by having the ban, we insulted and upset our major marketplace. So we wanted to go over there and show our support. I really didn't want to start writing about it until I'd actually seen it with my own eyes and and we'd watch the cattle being trucked, we'd watch them in feedlots, we went to see three abattoirs and then we ate in an Indonesian home a meal, a beef rendang meal and things like that. So we just wanted to see the system all the way through and then the idea came for us to talk about what we do and create Central Station without any other media agenda. It's just us telling our story about what we do, why we love it, why we're passionate about our industry, our land and our animals and our lifestyle. And um, it has been very successful. Kimberly Pastoral pastoralist Jane Sale from Yugawala Pastoral Company catching up with Courtney Fowler and talking about that blog, Central Station. I'm sure you've had a look at it over the years, celebrating its eighth birthday today. So congratulations on that long run, Jane. This is the Country Hour and it's seven minutes to one. Off to the markets now just before the news at one. And because it was a public holiday yesterday, today is the double header at Mushay. So getting to the cattle shortly, starting with the sheep. John Testro has been keeping an eye on that sale for you. John, how did it go? 8,103 head penned. That's up over 1,000 on last week and uh, unbelievably in a short week. First time I've ever seen numbers increased in a short week. But uh, market was very, very good and uh, compared very similar to last week's strong sale. Land market uh, rates all the way through were very, very firm. We'll start with the uh, the lightweights, the 0 to 12 kilos. They sold from 30 to 80 to uh, graziers. And the 13 to 16, similar to graziers and feedlotters from 70 to 125. The 17 to 20 kilo lambs sold from 122 to 153 at near 740 cents a kilo carcass weight. 21 to 22 kilos, 770 cents and sold from 145 to 177. And the 23 plus, once again, the pick of the yarding at 172 to $220 at nearer 810. Ram lambs today sold at 145 to 166 and hoggets, best hoggets from 140 to 212. The uh, hoggets at around about 600 cents per kilo carcass weight. In the uh, U-Mutt market, once again, rates very similar. We saw the uh, 20 to 24 kilo medium weight boners, 100 to 150, the top uh, 150 price, those with a skin. The 25 to 30 sold from 150 to 204 at near 650 cents a kilo carcass weight and the 30 plus closer to 620 at 185 to 220. Rams today, 104 to 150, very similar to last week, but the uh, weathers, they were up to $30 dearer on a um, heavier selection and they sold from 192 to $237. But that's all from me to, for today, Belinda. I'm John Testro for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service.
and the ABC. John, thank you for that. And John, a little surprised by the increase of numbers in a short week this week at the sheep sale at Mouche. On to the cattle now. An 893 head of cattle sold at Mouche today. Tracy Kilner has been at the sale all morning. What were the prices like today, Tracy? Hi, Belinda. Pastoral types dominated the yarding with most presented in prime condition and, and selling at prime rates. Lightweight local bred yearling steers topped the market at 586 cents while the wiener heifers topped at 484 cents a kilo. Wiener steers weighing under 280 kilos made 518 cents for pastoral types up to 580 cents for the local bred. Wiener heifers made 364 to 484 cents while the pastoral heifers sold for 320 to 440 cents a kilo. Local bred yearling steers made 438 to 586 cents depending on quality and heifers sold from 376 to 480 cents a kilo. The pastoral yearling steers made from 312 to 400 cents for lightweights while the pastoral heifers sold for 280 to 450 cents depending on quality. Grown steers weighing between 400 and 500 kilos sold for 350 to 400 cents. Over 500 kilo grown steers returned 300 to 380 cents a kilo. Grown heifers weighing under 540 kilos made 294 to 370 cents and the heavier heifers sold for 352 cents a kilo. Good runs of pastoral cows dominated this category with the lighter weight cows selling from 280 to 300 cents while the prime heavy cows sold from 260 to 376 cents in an easier market. Heavy bulls sold for 270 to 336 cents to processors. Medium weight bulls made from 272 to 344 cents to processors and export. Lightweight bullies gained 14 cents with demand, selling from 310 to 472 cents, depending on quality. Last Friday, we had the Boyan Up store sale, so a yarding of 630 Frisian, Frisian cross cattle. They all sold at what has been premium beef bread prices a little over a month ago. Heavy Frisian steers, 375 cents, up 30 cents. Medium Frisian wiener steers, 200 to 280 kilos, sold to 584 cents to average 558 cents a kilo. Frisian potty calves, under 200 kilos, sold to 760 cents, a near new record. Average Angus Frisian wiener steers, sold for 720 cents, average 708 cents up 50 cents a kilo. Top prices for the day, heavy Frisians sold for $2,294, Angus Frisian yearlings $2,105, Wieners averaged $2,006, Frisian yearling steers $1,862, Frisian wiener calves $1,515 and the potty Angus Frisians calves $1,071. All up, all the cattle again averaged over $1,500 a head and the panic to purchase before the end of June was evident. This Friday at Boyne Up, the beef breeds get a run with over a 1,000 wieners being offered. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you so much for going through all those details today. 893 head of cattle sold at Mouche today. I will talk to you tomorrow. News is next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.